Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. This is God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. So ends the reading of God's word. Children ages three through kindergarten are now dismissed for the little landing. event is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His coming to earth, having created the earth, is the most important event in the history of the world. In fact, it's the most important event that could ever occur because by it, his death and resurrection, he reigns on high and he will return again, completing the work he began at his first advent. Our time during Advent is to sing about not only the celebration of Christ having come, but the anticipation of Christ coming the second time. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 puts it like this. Let the word of God wash over you. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And, by, and making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That passage tells us God spoke through prophets, then he spoke to us through his Son, and we glory in his Son. The prophets were all fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ the Son, but you remember there was 400 years of silence in between the two. Why the 400 years of silence in between the two? Why do you have to be quiet, God? Why do you have to have no prophets? Why do you have to have no visions? Why do you have to have no more scripture written? Why do you have to have no more information? Why do we have to go for four centuries waiting, aching, desiring for you to fulfill your promises? People were wondering, God, were you truthful? Were you real? Had you given up? Had you surrendered to evil? Were you asleep? Were you lying to us before? It's a crisis of faith. That 400 years was designed by God to cause the world to ache. It's almost as if he says, in eternity past where there's darkness and chaos, before creation I created the world, but the world was gravely sinful, and now I'm going to create a new creation, and before it there will be 400 years of darkness and silence and sorrow. Don't begrudge the sorrows in your life right now. Don't question God and say, you don't know what you're doing with these sorrows in my life right now. Don't tell him that the things he has commanded that you have prayed for over and over, but they're still not happening. Don't tell them he's made a mistake. In the 400 years of silence, no vision, no prophets, no word, God was increasing the superiority of Christ over the prophets. Increasing the superiority of Christ over all the prophets. That's what the rest of the book of Hebrews is meant to explain. How far and infinitely more superior is Christ than all the prophets who came before him. No wonder that at the end of the 400 years, when the darkness is heavy, and we're going to see it in this passage, you're going to feel it in this passage, the darkness is heavy, and you're going to recognize it in the world today. It's still a heavy and dark world into which Christ is born, and into which the gospel arrives, and into which Christ will return. God ends his silence by bringing to a barren couple an angelic word you're going to have a son. Is God capable of keeping his promises? Yes. Is God hearing and aware of the needs and sorrows in the world? Yes. Is he ruling over them in his permissive design? Yes. Does he have a good plan for the 400 years of silence? Yes, he did. Does he have a good plan for the prayers that are going unanswered and aching in your hearts today? Yes, he does. 
At the birth of John to Zechariah and Elizabeth, God fulfills all his promises in the preparation for the coming of his king and Messiah. In the birth of John, God enacts the redemption of his people, the long-awaited new creation out of chaos and darkness, just like the first creation was out of chaos and darkness. But infinitely more important than the matters and details of the first creation is the second creation. It's not a plan B with God. Never think of it that way. The first creation was a lesson book, a blueprint, a prototype for the final, highest, and permanent new creation, the people of God in Christ. All these reveal Christ's birth is the most important event in reality. It is superbly and sweetly fitting that before Christ is born, an announcement of his relative, John, would be given and John would be born to come as a forerunner to exalt and elevate in our eyes and in our hearts the superiority of Christ over all other births, over all prophets, over all kings. I want you to see in the passage as we walk through it, first, how God blesses the faithful with miracles of mercy. This is a way to exalt Christ. He's going to bless the faithful with miracles of mercy. That's first. Second, God blesses us with bold joy to proclaim Christ. This is how Christ is exalted because he shows us, you'll see here in the life of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John, how God blesses us with bold joy to proclaim Christ. And third, God blesses us with power, his power, to redeem all things, including our unbelief. You might be thinking right now, these are hard to understand matters. These are high and they are lofty and they're spiritual and I'm not even sure if I can get my head around them. I'm not even sure if I can understand all that God is doing. It seems so religious and so ineffable and so above the normal workaday conversation and indeed it is, but that's the very value of it. This is where the power of God's word lifts our eyes and our attentions up beyond ourselves to see the glory of God at work, not only in Zechariah's day or in Mary's day, but in our day. God blesses the faithful with miracles of mercy. God blesses us with bold joy to proclaim Christ. God blesses us with power, even power to redeem all things, including our unbelief. And all of these are meant to exalt Christ through the lens of this family. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John. God blesses the faithful with miracles of mercy. Look at verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Every reader of Luke's gospel in which he wrote to his Roman friend Theophilus to tell him of the gospel of Christ would pause at verses 5 through 7 with sorrow and shock. How could it be that Herod, an Idumite, was king of Judea? I thought there was supposed to be someone from the line of David sitting on the throne of Israel. There's no one from the line of David sitting on the throne of Israel. An Edomite is on the throne, and his name is Herod. He's not even a very good guy. He's a bum. How did he get on the throne? Careful readers will ask. It's a reminder that there's darkness. 400 years of it. Things don't go right. 
Things aren't going right today. Darkness is encroaching like a glacier in on your life and on me and on this church and on faithful churches around the world today. The fact that Zechariah was a priest, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, they're from the priestly line, meant that they were serving in a priestly role, but they were barren? That's not right. How in the world can Zechariah and Elizabeth have a child or sons to carry on? How can they have daughters who would then also be from the line of Aaron and have husbands and sons who could carry on the priesthood? Something's wrong. Something's very wrong. There's a darkness at work here. There's a deep darkness at work here. Was it Elizabeth and Zechariah's fault that they were barren? No, it was not. We'll see in a moment. What it was was a signal to the spiritual barrenness of the people of God at this time. The 400 years had not left them cheerfully trusting in God. It had left them very spiritually dark. And the fact that the priest and his wife Elizabeth had no child was a sign of the spiritual barrenness of the people. It was not because of their sin. It's a massive mistake on the part of Zechariah, and as we'll see with Elizabeth, that she, as a barren woman now old, probably in her late 40s, Zechariah 2, late 40s, old then, were not barren because God was punishing them for sin. We're told, aren't we, that they are blameless before God. We're told that they were faithful as to the statutes of the Lord. We're told explicitly that they should not see their barrenness as a result of their sin. In fact, it was not a result of their sin. In fact, it was a prophetic message to themselves and all around that the people of God, in broad general terms, had fallen away from God and grown dark. But Elizabeth, look at verses 24 and 25. Skip all the way down to the end of the portion Howard read. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. There's the miracle coming. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I can't let them see me and tell them that a miracle has happened to me because I have no proof yet. I have to go away for five months and hide. Disgrace, shame, reproach on Elizabeth. Wrongly. You see how deep the darkness settles in? It makes a priest's wife think bad theological thoughts. What darkness has settled over the earth and over God's people and over Judea here? Don't you find some hardships? The ones that we don't have an answer for, the ones that we can't explain, the ones that seem to be out of step with God's will, don't you find some of them the hardest? Some consequences in our lives we can explain because of sin. They're natural consequences. We expected them and they happen. God has the power in the lives of believers to even redeem those consequences. Even if they're hard or difficult, he can redeem those in order that they might become sanctifying and purifying for us. 
He even can redeem the horrible things that are done against us when others sin against us. He has the power, if we're willing to leave those horrible experiences we may have endured at his feet and say, Lord, please purify this pain to me. He can redeem them. And yet it's when he makes a command, sinners be saved, sin be stopped, cover the earth with children, have children and bless them, be married, and we pray for those very things he commands, and they don't come to pass. These are the hardest. Paul writes in Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, in the lives of believers, suffering in this present time is not evidence we're disqualified. In fact, we have glory awaiting us, even though we're suffering. For believers, pain never means punishment. Never. Not once. Christ took it all on our behalf. So we can pray with Paul in just a few verses later, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including the ability to endure pain. Do not begrudge the hardships you now endure, lover of Christ. God has not failed, even though he might seem distant or even silent. Do not grow weary in well-doing. God is faithful because he is able and supplies to us the grace to bear up. We too might remain faithful. God blesses the faithful, with miracles of mercy. God blesses us with bold joy to proclaim Christ. Look at verses 8 through 10. This is the conversation now where Zechariah is inside the temple at the altar offering incense as a representation of the prayers of the people. Verse 8, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. God perfectly timed that Zechariah, one of the 18,000 priests of Israel, would be ordained to be inside the temple at the one time, probably in his whole life, when he was offering incense at the altar. Likely, many priests didn't offer incense ever. Zechariah, by God's design of the lot, no such thing as chance or luck, God's ordering of the way the lot falls meant that Zechariah would be inside the temple offering incense such that he might have a appointed meeting with the angel, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel could have come to his house or on, uh, outside on the steps or on the road along the way, but no, he came to the temple. Zechariah is acting as a priest according to his calling, and yet here he is, barren, childless, an aged man, and he's offering prayers. Surely he was praying for his people. O oh Lord God, let your voice come again through the prophets. Let your word come to us again. Let your presence be with us that we might know you have forgiven us of our sins and might share fellowship with you again. Surely that's the prayers the people are praying, and he's praying. Surely that's the way we are to pray for our church and to pray for Duluth and Superior and the surrounding communities and our nation and the peoples of the earth. Lord, come, speak a word, show us your presence, forgive us our sins, draw us back to fellowship with you. 
But you can imagine Zechariah was praying for a child. You can imagine the battle going on inside him and Elizabeth. Why, Lord? Why not a child? When you command it. You can imagine the ache of his soul. The privilege of going into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, into the altar and offer incense as a sacrifice, as as a fragrant aroma reminding God of his forgiveness of sins. And Exodus 30 tells us of the atonement that was made for sins at the altar with the sacrifices. Zechariah was praying surely for all the people as a good priest faithfully does, but also for his precious wife and for himself. Then the angel Gabriel, the one who always shows up to tell the good news, comes and speaks. Look at what he says in verse 11, or what the scripture says, Luke tells us in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Almost as if the angel is treating the altar like the very throne of God. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Troubled means the the waters were were rustled. That's what the word troubled means, terrasso. He's troubled. He's fearful. He's anxious. He's nervous. He's scared. And fear fell upon him. What if, in fact, it's true that I don't have a son because I'm a phony, I'm a deep sinner, and this is the angel of God coming to kill me? That's what Zechariah thought. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Apparently the angel knows Hebrew. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. One of God's mighty angels, Gabriel, when the mighty angel of the Lord appears, fear grips Zechariah. He's troubled, but the angel says, don't fear, I bring you good news that your prayer has been answered. Your singular prayer has been heard. The prayer for a child, the prayer for God's blessing upon all of Israel, both of those massive prayers and your singular personal prayer are answered in one miracle that shall happen. Gabriel says, your prayer is heard, but not just yours. Your wife will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him John. It is as certain as can be, Zechariah. You're old, she's old, you've been barren all your lives, but I'm telling you, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall name him John. So yes, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. God has plans to raise up through the preaching and forerunner prophetic ministry of your son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of glory, the one to sit again on the throne of David and rule over God's people without end. And the Spirit will be poured out. The kingdom will come. Wickedness in this world will be forgiven and purified. And all that and much more will happen because you prayed a faithful prayer, Zechariah. God has heard. He will give your wife 
conception of a son, and you shall call his name John. John means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. Not only Yahweh has been gracious to Elizabeth and Zechariah, but Yahweh is being gracious to the whole world indeed in answering this prayer. I remember when Kath and I were struggling with infertility. I remember how painful it was and sometimes still is. I remember wondering why if God commands children to be born, why is it that it seems so impossible? I remember asking those questions, and I know Kath did too. Maybe some of you are experiencing infertility. Maybe you have. Maybe you will. Or something else where you see God commanding a good thing. Heal this one, Lord. Give give. Repentance from sin to this one, Lord. Mend this marriage, Lord. Raise up this sick person. Save this soul, Lord. We've been praying so often and long for you to save this one, and yet you seem not yet to answer. Give us a child, Lord. All these prayers are so painful because they're commanded by God. These are all things within his will, and yet they seem to be in the time of 400 years of waiting in darkness. Now Gabriel says, your prayer is heard, Zechariah. Your wife will conceive and bear a son. You shall call him John. And this is God being gracious to you. It isn't only God being gracious to you, it's God being gracious to all Israel. Look what happens in verses 14 through 17. Now I want you to be aware, I'm sorry that the ESV I think if I'm right, the ESV doesn't set this off. No, it doesn't set this off as poetic song. That's sad and unfortunate because 14 through 17 is a song. It's a song built around the word will. Nine times the word will shows up in this song, and it's in Hebrew indented in as well as in Greek. It's this glorious picture of the Wonderful salvation of God sung in the form of good news by Gabriel to Zechariah deep inside the temple. As Zechariah trembles in fear, Gabriel sings God's plans to him. I wish I knew the melody, and I wish I knew what it sounded like when an angel sang. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just." to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow, great song, Gabriel. John will be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, and he will be great before the Lord. Being great before the Lord means he will please the Lord in all that he does. You and I have the same Holy Spirit as believers filling and sealing us as happens when we are born again. We we too, therefore, are great before the Lord, just as John is and was. John did not taste strong drink even as a baby, not because Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to give wine to their baby, but because he was being set apart as a Nazarite. 
Remember, John is from the Aaronic line of priests. He's a priest because his father Zechariah is a priest, and he's a priest because his mother comes from Aaron. And now this this statement that he won't taste strong, strong drink means he's a Nazarite like Samuel or Samson. Some call them the warrior priests. Mighty and powerful, prophetic, priestly in their role, but fearless and bold. That's what John's future mission is. It's what our future mission is as well. That's the point of tasting, not tasting strong drink. There's nowhere in the Bible that forbids drinking alcohol. We will have alcohol in heaven. Jesus says, I will not drink this new with you till I drink it in my Father's kingdom. But oh, the need of the moment. Oh, the need of the hour. Oh, the need of clear-mindedness now would cause thoughtful. John-like, Samuel Samson-like, Christ-like, Nazarites to say, no drink for me. I need my mind clear. i got a ministry to proclaim. I have boldness and truth to declare. And I want my mind to be fuzzy or the message compromised. So John's mission in the power of the Spirit was as a mighty priest in the Aaronic line, but also in the holiness of Samson and Samuel, who also were Nazarites. He's he's Israel's final priest. It's like all the priests are coming to their climax in John. He's the last one before Christ. Even the great high priest and others who continue to hold their political roles reveal they have nothing to contribute but speaking truth only as God ordains and not because their heart loves it. John's mission was threefold. First, he would turn children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is one of the darknesses. Children were were running away from obeying their parents, and fathers were running away from faithfulness to their wives and to their children. This was part of the darkness. Is that darkness here? Of course it is. That's the mission of John and those who follow in the in the spirit and power of John like us, to turn fathers' hearts back to their children and children back to their fathers. Second, he was to turn the children of Israel in their disobedience to the Lord. Israel had forgotten about God, and he's going to say to the whole nation, turn back to God, revive yourself, turn back to God, people of God. And third, he would turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. All persons are disobedient and must be returned back to the wisdom of God, the word of God, the justice of God. There's need for repentance in families. There's need for repentance in the church, and there's need for repentance in the entire culture. John did all of these three, and he was successful. How did he do so? He called for a baptism of repentance. He called all Israel to repent. He fulfilled the wills that the angel Gabriel sang over Zechariah, the nine wills, they will, 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 will happen. And it all did in John's ministry because he was preparing a people for the Lord. When Christ would come in the inauguration of the kingdom of the Lord God, if you were unrepentant, if you were hardened and continuing in your sin, then his kingdom would come and crush you. But if you were coming with your knee bent and bowed and your heart tender and your, your, your eagerness for his grace and mercy to be yours, God be merciful to me a sinner was your prayer, then the kingdom of God, God was the best possible news as it arrived in your life for it forgave you of your sins. 
We still have the mission of John upon us. We still have the call to be bold like him. You remember when John grew up to be a young man? Herod, the son of the Herod that is mentioned here in Luke 1, took a wife of his brother Philip, and he married her, committing adultery. And out loud in public, John, in Nazarite, bold, powerful terms, said, Herod, you can't have her. She's not yours. You're acting in adultery against the law. So those in the spirit and power of Elijah, those in the spirit and power of the Lord God, carrying on the ministry of John, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, now will say, you can't commit adultery and go to heaven, for adulterers will not enter the kingdom of God. Repent of it now and be forgiven and restored. You can't commit fornication, for fornicators will not enter the kingdom of God. So repent of it now and be forgiven and be restored while there is yet time. You can't pretend a woman is a man and a man is a woman, for God detests such sins because they act as if God made a mistake in creating you good as you are. So repent of it now while there is time to be forgiven and restored. Neither can you or I commit pharisaical judgmentalism, for such will not enter the kingdom of God. So repent of it now. Be forgiven and restored. And such were some of you and me. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's why Gabriel said there would be such joy for all the people. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. In the midst of John's preaching 30 years later as a man, many came up to him and said, You know, John, your disciples are following this Jesus of Nazareth. How do you feel about that? John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You hear what John's saying? My mission is succeeding when everybody who used to listen to me goes and listens and follows Jesus. The reason why we all exist here as a church is to point people away from you and me and to point them to Christ. Then we'll know we are under God's Holy Spirit and not in any way stealing attention away from His exalted Son, our glorious Savior. Do you see how that happens? John gives a clue. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know the joy Gabriel told my dad when I was just still a twinkle in his eye? That joy is now mine, John says 30 years later, and it's complete How does it happen? I decrease while Christ increases. Pride kills joy. You want joy in Christ in your life? Kill pride. I'm going to decrease, Lord. Then my joy will be full as you increase. You can't simultaneously think highly of yourself and teach everyone around you to think highly of you and of themselves and have joy in the Lord. If you think highly of yourself and teach everyone else around you to think highly of yourself, if you manipulate the world so that you look good, nobody has joy in Christ because of you. Pride kills joy. 
Surely John was thinking about his own father. When you have an angel singing all these glorious truths to you about what will happen, you're going to conceive. It's a miracle, you and Elizabeth, and you're going to have a son, and you'll call him John, and he will be great before the Lord and filled with the Spirit, and many will rejoice because he will turn all of Israel back to God. He will turn the children of Israel to their heavenly father. He will turn earthly fathers and sons and daughters back to one another and restore families. He will cause all the disobedient to restore, be restored to wisdom and to justice. And many will rejoice. Surely John must have been thinking about his father's response. God blesses us with his power to redeem all things, including our unbelief. Look at verses 18 through 23. And notice Zechariah's response to the angel singing to him. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Sometimes you can be so entrenched in the bad news of your life that you can't imagine it ever changing. Sometimes it seems too hard to believe to say, this thing that I've been praying for for decades and decades and decades that seems so immovable and dark and unchanging, I can't just have an angel show up, sing a song, and it's all good. I'm still old. She's still old. How can God change that? in a blink. Zechariah's question was not a a believing curiosity like Mary's question will be down in verse 24. No, it's in fact a statement of unbelief. I don't think you get the situation, Gabriel, and whoever sent you, the God who sent you, he doesn't quite get it. We're old. We've been asking for a child for a long time. We've settled with it that we're not having one. We're a family without one. We have a dog. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you by God and to bring you this good news. In other words, you don't know who you're talking to, Zechariah. I am the very power of God, Gabra El, Gabor El, the power, strength, might of God. That's me. I'm the one who will show up in the book of Revelation running the show in the future. I stand in the presence of God. I stand right to his right the way I'm standing to the right of this altar right now talking to you. I talk with God the way I'm talking with you. If you reject my words, you reject his words. Verse 20, and behold, you will be silent. You don't want to hear God talk to you? You're not only going to be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, but you will also not be able to hear. We know that because all the way down in verse 62, the rest of the people have to make signs to him because he can't hear. 
Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. You can imagine he's in the temple for a long time, even after Gabriel left, because he's trying to figure out why he can't talk. That's what priests have to do to do their job. They talk. He can't talk, and he can't hear all of a sudden. The angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and gave him the best conceivable news, not just that his son would be given to him and Elizabeth, but that his son would be given to the world to be the forerunner, the preparer for the people of the Lord. And he says, nah, you're kidding. We're too old. So the angel disciplines him with both the inability to speak and the inability to hear Be careful what you do with the gospel, that it does not find unbelief in you and you are set aside for ministry. Be careful what you do when you hear the gospel, that it does not meet with unbelief in you and you are set aside from ministry. Maybe like me, you're right now saying, Lord, would you root out every dust particle of unbelief in me? Do it, Lord. Correctly, Isaiah prophesied over Israel, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A great Puritan preacher, Jeremy Taylor, said this, God threatens terrible things if we are not happy in him. The way we know that that's good news is that God always makes those happy in him who seek him. His joy is there for all who seek him. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you lack joy in God? Confess to God that like Zechariah, there is pride and unbelief in your heart and ask that God would cause you to decrease in order that Christ might increase and then your joy will be full. Let's end by looking at Elizabeth herself. Sweet Elizabeth, hides for five months. She didn't want anybody to see the wonder that she heard from her husband and the wonder that she knew physiologically as she had conceived a child, even though she's an older woman, her reproach was lifted, the reproach wrongly set set upon her. A miracle ordained by God. And here's Elizabeth hiding in order that when she reveals herself, it will be plain to all and she will have to say nothing that she's a mother and about to give birth. Just like God hides himself for 400 years, Elizabeth hides herself for five months. The birth of John and and his growing up is perfectly timed. The birth of Christ and his growing up is perfectly timed. The 400-year time period of God's discipline on Israel was perfectly timed. All things for God are perfectly timed, including what's happening in your life and my life. I have prayer requests that I wait on God to answer. So do you. We do as a church. We all know and love people who are aching 
for themselves or for someone near them. Save this one. Heal this one. End sin in this one's life. Bring a baby. Bring a spouse. Bring salvation. Do it, Lord. One of the reasons God ordains time is that he might create this believing faith, this joy, not just in you, but in so many others. Let me end with this observation. The angel Gabriel would shortly come to Mary. And you remember what he said to her? Just one thing. Gabriel talking to Mary says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Imagine Mary's eyes lighting up. Really? Old Elizabeth has a baby growing within her? And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Hear that, Elizabeth, as you wait. Hear that, Mary, as you believe that Christ is born in your womb. Hear that, Zechariah, nothing is impossible with God. Hear that, the people of Israel, that all the promises of God are yes and amen and are come to fulfillment in him. Hear that, the Landing Faith family and my family and yours. Hear that nothing is impossible with God and that faithful prayer, prayers of the people and prayers of the saints are heard by God and answered at their appointed hour. And so you have revivals that take place in America in the 1730s and 40s, and the entire nation is built upon the conversions and the doctrines of the glory of God that were established in the colonies in the 1730s and 40s, and we will never be without them. The Waorani tribe under Jim Elliott was one to Christ in the 1950s in Ecuador. And right now, even though in 1976 some guessed there were less than 50 Christians in all of China, there's now at least 150 million Christians underground in China. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word of Gabriel that emboldens me, and I thank you for the conviction my heart receives through Zechariah's unbelief. I pray that you would remove all unbelief in me and cause me to love and trust and receive joy at the message of Zechariah. I know that not in this life is every prayer answered just the way we have asked it, but we, I also know that every prayer is answered with something far better still. I pray that you would bless those aching hearts in this room like Elizabeth and Zechariah that are aching for something you've commanded, but they still seem to wait with that ache unanswered. I pray, Father, that you would embolden us to continue like Zechariah praying and to not fall into the errors of thinking that your delay is because you're angry with us. Would you embolden me and my family and this church family and believers that we represent around this whole region to be bold like John to prepare a people for the Lord and then come, Lord Jesus, by the Spirit in great revival power in 2022 in the United States and in the northern region right where we are or wherever you deem best and magnify your name highest, come 
save the lost, strengthen your church, forgive sinners, restore families, heal the sick, bring down evil, and exalt righteousness. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Let's respond to